The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy 4. You have a two-page handout, and we're going to go through the first of those pages today. The life of love. How do we get there? Pray with me. What is man that you are mindful of him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. I speak here, Lord, of the ultimate man, the last Adam in whom we find our hope. You made him a little lower than the angels. He is the one who's crowned with glory and honor. In putting everything in subjection to him, you left nothing outside of the control of Christ. All authority in heaven and on earth, his. And yet at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we do see Him, Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, who for a little while came and took on flesh and dwelt among us. This Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, so that by your mercy, Father, he might taste death for everyone who believes. May the mercy of the cross be magnified in this place today as we consider your redemptive work, the purpose of the law, the death of Israel, the resurrection of Israel in the person of Jesus. May our hearts be enraptured with mercy, even as we let our eyes look forward to the day when all things will now be seen to be in subjection to him. We thank you that it is already real, though it's beyond our sight. He has all authority, and he is with us to the end of the age. In him we hope. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 4. The final words of a pastor. A pastor who had shepherded his people for 40 years. And this word today shows up all throughout the book. Today, what I'm telling you. Today, what I'm preaching to you. And then at the end of the book, in chapter 34, we learned that on that day, God called Moses up on the mountain and he died. So these very, may, may very well be, I mean, the very last words of Moses before he died, even on the day of the very words that he would have proclaimed to them. His first sermon 
has an interesting ending. Three sermons, a deathbed blessing, and a warning song. That makes up Deuteronomy. And then it's stitched together by an editor, someone who was already in the land. For Moses, the land was beyond the Jordan. He's in Moab on the east side of the Jordan looking across and he calls the promised land beyond the Jordan. But the editor who, t- who gave us Moses' death at the end of the book, he looks back and he talks about Moses being beyond the Jordan. So Israel, when those waters parted for the second time and they crossed the Jordan River this time, they had a briefcase filled with, I believe, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and three sermons, a warning song, and a deathbed blessing. That's what they had with them. And then somebody, after they arrived into the land of Canaan, Joshua maybe, tied all those sermons together. When we ask what did the author want us to get, it's very obvious in Deuteronomy, he took if, if the author's the final hand on the book, he took all the spotlight off of him. He only speaks with 66 clauses in the entire book. Moses gets all the rest. It's Moses' voice, and Moses is the mouthpiece of God. And God is looking ahead to Israel's history as they enter into the land, and he's graciously, hear that, graciously giving them a constitution. A framework, a book that's going to to give them clarity about who they're supposed to be. But not only the disclosure of his revealed will, he's calling them to love them with all. Let these words sink deeply into your heart. As you hear them, may it give rise to a proper fear of me that gives rise to obedience. Not only is is he focusing there, he also lays out a very real picture of Israel's own existence. Last week we saw that although God called them to hear him, although God called them to have their hearts surrendered to him, he also said, you're a stubborn people, you're rebellious, and you've been rebellious since the day I brought you out of Egypt, and you are stubborn, rebellious, and unbelieving, faithless. It's not amazing then that Paul was able to say the law, that law of Moses, is not of faith. It was not characterized by faith because it was given to a hard-hearted people who did not trust in God, did not surrender to God. The ways of the world were more enticing to them than the ways of the Lord. It's to that group that we read these words. Deuteronomy chapter 4, and we're going to begin... In verse 25, we're going to look at verses 25 through 29 first. And as we do, I want you to get a big picture of Israel's history. God is looking ahead. Prophets like Moses were called seers. They not only had eyes to see into the hearts of the present so that Moses could identify what the people didn't see. They thought all was well, and he said, you're stubborn. I can see right through you. I see stubbornness, I see rebellion, I see lack of faith. He was a seer. But not only were the seers able to see into the present, they were able to see into the future. 
And that's what God gives Moses eyes to see. So this people that God is calling them to follow him closely, God says, you're going to run away. And darkness and destruction is going to come. So this is what we read. And it's, it's a sketch of Israel's history in three stages. See if you can pick them up. Verse 25. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land... So we're talking about they've already made it, the promises that they're going to make it. The first generation didn't, the second generation is going to. In the land, you're going to father children and there's going to be more and more children. Generations are going to pass. And then our ESV adds an if, um, but there's no if there. It's just and. When you father children and you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything, and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger. It's just a chain of ands. It's going to happen. In chapter 31, God said this to Moses, 31.16, I'll just read it for us. Behold, Moses, you're about to lie down with your fathers. You're about to die. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering, and they will forsake me. There's no, con- there's no potential here. It's simply going to happen. They will forsake me. They'll whore after the foreign gods. They'll break my covenant that I made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them, and I will hide my face from them. And many troubles will devour them. That's Deuteronomy 31. Now we're back in chapter 4. When you enter into the land, and generations pass, and you grow old, and you act corruptly, and you follow other gods... You begin to trust promises that are not mine, but but being deceived away from my ways and what I believe is best for you. You do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, and you provoke him to anger, then this will happen. There's a period in the land, and now stage two. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over to the Jordan to possess. You will not live long, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. This is Moses. This isn't Paul looking backwards at Israel's history. This is Moses before Israel even moves. You're filled with rebellion and the rebellion's going to continue. Your heart is stubborn and it's not going to change. You don't believe now and you won't believe then. And the result is going to be curse. A period of blessing, enjoying the provision of God, just like Adam and Eve had it in, the, in, the, in their paradise, will give rise to exile, curse, separation, outside the garden. Just as Adam was kicked out, Israel is kicked out. Adam was called to image God, to represent God in the, wor- in the world. And as he had children, to fill the earth, multiply, and display the greatness of God. Image God. Israel was set apart from the nations, designed to be a channel, an instrument, 
through which the world would be blessed. The focus was not supposed to be Israel, the copper pipe. The focus was supposed to be on the God that they were displaying, the life-giving blessing that was to pour through them, that the nations were to receive from Old Testament Israel. But like Adam, Israel will fail to display the greatness of God. And that's why when we read three-fourths of our Bibles, the Old Testament, we get really discouraged. But Moses saw it coming. Moses would have said with Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, the law had a ministry of condemnation. That's what the law was given for. I'm going to give you a law, people, a good law. I'm going to call you to put it on your hearts, to teach it to your children, to to let it impact your doing and your perception, to write it on the doorposts of your house, saying everything that goes on here is Yahweh's, Yahweh's, to let it influence your commerce and your business practice. Write it inside the city gates. But though I call you to good things... The law will not bring about life, weakened as it was by the flesh. Romans 8, verse 3. Because Israel was stubborn, and they were rebellious, and they were unbelieving. Paul, Moses says, the age of blessing is going to give rise to an age of curse. But like Adam and Eve back in the garden who before God ever kicks them out, before God ever says, I'm going to bring judgment on the man and on the woman, before that, God declared to the serpent, I'm going to raise up a royal deliverer who's going to overcome the curse. He's going to crush you down and I'm going to establish blessing once again. Before God ever brought judgment, he had the promise of blessing. Restoration blessing through a man. A royal man, a king in the line of Judah, we're told by the end of Genesis. And now, Israel, before they even get into their promised land, where they're supposed to be a kingdom of priests, all the nations gathering to them as if the promised land was the temple where God sits on the throne, and the entire nation were the priests serving in God's temple. And all the peoples of the, of the land who are under God's curse are supposed to come to Israel to meet God. Instead, their priestly role is going to get turned on its head. Israel is going to be like priests in, in rotten, tattered garments, filled with sin, filled with deception, filled with vileness. That's what Israel's going to be. And they're going to get cast out and thrown among the nations. But God's final word is not curse. And even before this actually happens, God gives the message of hope already in Deuteronomy. Look at verse 29. But from there, Israel, from there, in the midst of your separation, in the midst of your sickness, in the midst of your sin, there you will seek the Lord. In the midst of your brokenness, you will finally find your helper. In the midst of your your condemnation, you will finally find your Savior. You will seek the Lord your God. And when you seek Him, you will find Him. It's beautiful. You will find Him if you search 
after him with all your heart and with all your soul. Moses' picture of Israel's history. And the third stage is where we live today. It begins with a time in the land of blessing. It gives rise to a period outside the land of curse. And then curse gets triumphed over by a period of restoration blessing. And it's that age of restoration when the rest of the prophets will unpack. Israel will rise up and through them the purpose of Israel will finally be fulfilled. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed. Moses doesn't stop there. He will not take, he won't miss this opportunity to bring great glory to the Father who's orchestrating history. So look now at verses 30 and 31 where he provides us why is this going to happen? Why is the curse going to be overcome? Why, why is Israel going to return to God? Whose initiative is it? When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord and obey His voice because... We do not come to him unless he first comes to us, says Deuteronomy 4. Israel will come back to God, they'll return to God, they'll begin to follow God because, and it's so awesome, for the Lord your God is merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. The very basis of all new covenant transformation. The very thing that's going to overcome the curse, the darkness that's spelled out all throughout the Old Testament. This verse says, is the mercy of God. You will return in that day. The curse will be overcome. Your sin will be dealt with. All that's implied here. Somehow the sin problem has to be addressed. And what Moses says is that your entire inclination of your heart is going to be changed from sin toward God because of mercy. It's not in this context, you'll receive mercy because your heart is turned to God. No, he says you will return to God because God is merciful, period. It's awesome. And then we are left to say, how could God be just? And the justifier of these people. How could he still be a good judge? when he is allowing sinners to be saved by grace. How could he do it? We could go backwards and say, well, it's because of the blood of bulls and goats. But I'm sure that Israel would have been scratching their head and saying, how is that possible? That the slaying of a lamb could stand for my sin when God is absolutely holy over all. It calls us, it compels us to ask the question, how can God give us such mercy? 
Deuteronomy 4 leads us into Easter week. It just, it just calls for us to grab onto it and celebrate a God who is merciful while I was still a sinner. I returned because of His mercy. That is, His mercy showed up while I was a sinner. That's our God. Blessing gives rise to curse, which gives rise to restoration blessing. And it's going to happen because we have a God who is faithful to past promises. We have a God who is able justly to forgive sins. If we confess them, He is faithful and just. How? I write these things to you so that you will not sin, but if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. There it is. The justness of God. So there's the framework, and I just want to spend the rest of our day overviewing the problem, the solution as Deuteronomy lays it out, and celebrating this unbelievable God who shows up in our lives when we don't deserve it. A good call. Here's where we were last week. The Old Covenant problem was not with the Old Covenant words. What it called for in the words was good. Deuteronomy 31, I've already laid it out for us last week. I want you to read in their hearing... Read so that they may hear, every man, woman, boy, and girl, and the sojourner who is within your gates. Read the word so that they may hear, because nothing is going to be sparked. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word. So without the proclaiming of the word, there will be no faith, because there will be no hearing. So Israel, read the word that you might hear that you might learn to fear so that you will not sin. But it's in the very next verses that we read what the text I just read. So in verses, verses 11 through 13, God says, Read the law in the hearing of Israel so that they may hear and learn to fear and do as they continue to live in the land. And then, so Moses says that in one breath, and then God says, Moses, you've called Israel to good things. The problem with the law was not what Moses called for. He wasn't calling for legalism. He wasn't calling for a works-based righteousness. He was calling for an internal transformation that was fully dependent on God to bring about. God had to speak in a way that would bring about hearing, that would ignite fear, that would lead to obedience. Because obedience is to happen only in the context of fear, which is brought about by God himself. A true encounter with God. We work out our salvation with fear and with trembling, for it is God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That is Moses' gospel. Surrender to God and live rebel against God and die. The good news is that the God of the universe who is just and good and holy 
has made a way for you and me to actually enjoy a relationship with Him. He wants it. That's what's revealed to Israel in one breath. But then we get a glimpse into God's sovereign purposes in the very next paragraph. What God has revealed, His revealed will, must be distinguished from His sovereign will. It is God's sovereign will that cannot be thwarted. Not even Satan can overcome God's sovereign will. It is God's overarching purpose wherein He is controlling and working out all things from beginning of time to the end of time. That is different than His revealed will. His revealed will is, Jason, love your wife. Serve her well. And sadly, in our broken world, I can say mean things to my wife. And rather than being a servant, I can be an abuser. I can break God's revealed will. God's revealed will was you shall not murder and you shall not kill unjustly. That was God's revealed will. And yet it was the purpose of God to crush Jesus. It was the purpose of God that Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles who were with them and the Jewish leaders would do what God's purpose and plan had predestined to occur. Acts chapter 4, verse 25. I think it's verse 25. God's revealed will, do not kill unjustly. God's sovereign will, I have purpose that Christ would die. God purposes things that he hates. Like the death of his son. And like the rebellion of Israel. God's revealed will was Israel, follow me. Hear the word that I am speaking and may it give rise to an internal disposition that is revering me for who I am, that overflows then in a path of obedience. That was God's revealed will, but His sovereign will, we get a glimpse of it right here. Moses, you're about to die. This people will rise and whore after other gods among them in the land that they are entering and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them then my anger will be kindled against them in that day and I will forsake them and hide my face from them and they will be devoured and many evils and troubles will come upon them so that in that day they will say have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us and I will surely hide my face from them because of all the evil that they have done that's what's going to happen It's not a potential, it's going to happen. So in the same text, in the same chapter, two paragraphs side by side, God's revealed will is given, and then what's going to happen is laid out, and it's exactly the opposite. Now, what was at stake was not just God's knowing that Israel was going to be rebellious and stubborn and unbelieving, We're just going to go back to Deuteronomy 29 now. We're in Deuteronomy 31, when what I just laid out. Now I'm just going to look back at the previous sermon. Here's what we read in Deuteronomy 29. These are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You've seen, you have seen, 
You've had physical eyes to experience certain things. You have seen what the Lord did in in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all of his servants. The great trials that your eyes saw. Deuteronomy 29 verse 3. Those signs and those great wonders. Verse 4. But to this day, though you've had eyes to see something outside, you have not had spiritual eyes. To this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know or eyes to see, or ears to hear. And until he acts, the word can be spoken and spoken and spoken, and you will not hear. Why? Because when you finally hear, and your stubborn heart and your deafness is overcome, all you'll be able to say is, mercy. Hear that? God did not give them eyes to see or ears to hear or a heart to understand. That's why they're going to rebel. That's why their history is going to be one of condemnation rather than of righteousness. God's laying out his purposes, He gave them a law, but He also gave them something else. Here's Paul's commentary in Romans 11. God gave Israel a spirit of stupor. He didn't just not give them eyes to see, he gave them something. And it wasn't just a good law, he gave them eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear. The word is being spoken to them, but they couldn't even get to first base hearing, giving rise to learning to fear that they might obey. They don't get any of it because God did not enable. Indeed, he didn't overcome. Indeed, according to Paul, it wasn't just a matter of his not overcoming. It was that he gave them something. He gave them the hostility of their heart. Are you praying for people that need the Lord? Why do we pray? Because God alone is the one who holds the key. He alone can overcome the stubbornness. He alone can work in Taylor's life. And so we pray. We pray, pleading, because He alone is our answer. He alone is our hope. And it's all about mercy. And mercy magnifies the work of Christ. Israel was doing what they wanted to do. Hear that. It wasn't that they were trying to not be stubborn. No, they were delighting in their stubbornness. They were delighting in their rebellion. They were delighting in their unbelief. That's who they were. That's who they wanted to be. But the only way they could get out of it is if mercy showed up. That's that's Moses' view. Here's Paul. The law is not of faith, for by works of the law no human being will be justified in God's sight because in God's Sovereign will, he made an initial purpose for the law, and the initial purpose was to crush. The initial purpose of the law was to condemn, to show Israel that their hearts were wicked. Israel was not supposed to line up. They couldn't. God's purpose was that Israel as a nation would be dwindled down 
The remnant getting smaller and smaller, all of the chaff being pushed aside until all the nation was dwindled down to one. And Christ is Israel. He is the ultimate son of David, the king who represents the whole. And he's also the last Adam who represents all of humanity. He is Israel who fulfills the priestly role. And by his sacrificial work brings about the opportunity for the salvation not only of Jew, but also of Gentile. And that's why God did it the way he did. Because God gets great glory when Christ gets great glory. And God is passionate to preserve and display the greatest image of himself. But the more we know of God, the more true vision of God, the greatest love we have. He lets us see his mercy because he let us be sinners. And we couldn't celebrate it, his mercy. We couldn't celebrate his justice. We couldn't celebrate his free will in dispersing his mercy and withholding it as he pleases. We couldn't celebrate it apart from a sin that needed to be saved from. Apart from a rebellion that had to get triumphed over. Apart from spiritual invisible powers that had to be, that Jesus had to show his victory over. By them they were created. By him they were created. Things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, were created by Jesus. Thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities were created through him. But not just through him. They were created for him. Colossians 1.16 That Jesus might be exalted. That mercy might be displayed. And that we might have more of God to revel in than we would have ever seen without a broken world that had to get fixed. Here's the verse we saw last week. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, Jesus says. Hear that? Unless mercy intrudes, I'm left in darkness willfully. That's where I want to be. I am dead and dead people can't choose to wake up. There has to be a voice that cries out, let there be light. Bam! And it comes. Lazarus, come forth. And that's what moves a dead man. It's the voice of God speaking, not just on the outside, but somehow by His grace, speaking in a way that, it, that takes deaf ears and makes them hearing. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. There's our hope. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. The word will come. But this is a different kind of teaching than Moses was doing. Not different words necessarily, but now it's teaching that's working in the soul, not just on external tablets of stone, but written on the tablet of the heart. They will be taught by God, and they will hear, and they will learn, and they will follow. That's what the verse says. 
Turn with me now to Deuteronomy chapter 30. And when all these things come about upon you, the blessing and the curse. There's your first blank. Notice in the history, it's the blessing gives rise to the curse, which gives rise to restoration blessing. That's the world of Deuteronomy 30. It's the restoration blessing world. So the blessing has happened, the curse has happened, and now you're in restoration blessing. When the blessing and the curse have come upon you, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where you've been driven, and you return to the Lord your God, and you and your children, and obey his voice, in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, the new covenant is going to be after blessing and curse has been experienced. The new covenant is going to include, it will include, a true returning to the Lord. This is one of the reasons why I don't believe that 1948 and the reconstitution of Israel as a land is directly related to these old covenant promises. Because the reconstitution of Israel did not include a return to God and his king, the Messiah. And it says, Israel in that day will return to God. It doesn't mean that the reconstitution of Israel and the regathering of a higher number of Jews in one particular place in the world is not setting a stage for an eschatological, Romans 11.25, rebringing in of Israel. Once jealousy rises for all the Gentiles that have been brought into Christ and Israel realizes that the boy is now playing with the toy that they got at Christmas. Israel was given a great toy and it got old after two days. And they put it in the closet and the Gentile friend showed up and he started playing with that toy. And at one point, the jealousy in that boy, all of a sudden that toy... Namely, their Messiah is going to become the most important thing. It's been in the closet, but all of a sudden jealousy is going to rise, says Paul. And Deuteronomy 32, verses 40 and following is where that all started. It's in Deuteronomy 32, verses 40 and following that Moses said, I'm going to make you jealous, Israel, by a people that is not my own. God's going to do a work among the Gentiles that's going to spark jealousy among the Jews and they're going to come back. And so I think that that's possible that 1948 and what's happening in the Israeli state has something to do with that. Future work, but that by itself is not restoration because the first move is that they will return to the Lord and there is no returning to the Lord apart from his son. What do I think about the present-day Jews and their relationship? Oh, how is it going to happen? I don't know. I, I don't know. But one thing I do know is that it's supposed to happen because a church that 
right now is made up predominantly of Gentiles, is supposed to display God in such a way, in such a compelling way, that the Jews say, what have I missed? Jesus said, this good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed to every nation and then the end will come. And it's good news that's bound up in King Jesus. And somehow it's a call for us to display. It's a missional call for us to display greatly Jesus. And God in his time will all of a sudden overcome the hardness and do a work in their hearts. I don't know when and how. I don't. The... the um, Yes, I, I believe I do. Um, how more could Israel come back? And this, this is uh, displaying a little bit of my, my understanding of how it's all going to work out at the end and not all the pastors on staff are all in agreement. Um, but what could make an ethnic Jews return to the Messiah more than actually getting to see him face to face. Now that would be historic premillennialism rather than amillennialism, which is inaugurated millennialism. One view believes that Jesus is going to return and establish a, a temporary kingdom physically on earth. And then after that, that extended period of time, then the end will finally come and new heavens and new earth will be established. The other view is that right now Jesus is reigning over all things and when he returns there will be no extended millennium. We're in it right now. And, and then the, the end will actually be accomplished. I think the view that you're presenting fits, I, I think it, the scripture would be prone to move in that way and this would answer Sue's question that Jesus, when he returns, that will be the spark that will bring about um, high levels of rebellion and also massive levels of um, restoration, even on a global scale, with Jews from all over the globe. Okay, I, we could keep going. Our time is up, but let me just, let me just look at, I just want to read a couple things. Look at verse 3 of chapter 30. The Lord will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you. That's the same word for mercy back in chapter 4. Which means that mercy is going to come after Israel has seen their hearts return to God and it's mercy that's going to bring it about in the beginning. So it's going to be begin with mercy and it's going to be sustained with mercy. This relationship with God. That's where we live. We live in the age of sustained mercy that's able to be given because of previous mercy that all brings great glory to the Son. It's in this text, verse 6, I will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that the love that I've been calling for in this book that none of you are able to keep 
in that day when I do the internal work, when I overcome your hardness and your rebellion and your unbelief, when I overcome the curse and see it crushed under your feet, in that day, you're going to begin to love me as you're supposed to love me. Why? Because of mercy. Because mercy started things and mercy is what continues things. This is a book that is about exalting the greatness of God. That's what Israel takes with them into the land as they go. Every individual having a a possibility to be a Joshua or a Ruth or a Rahab or an Ezekiel but most of them not in that small remnant, most of them being part of the rebel. But there's, there's individuals who heard Deuteronomy and God actually did something in them. The psalmist, he celebrates the law of God, but most of Israel was not. For most of Israel, following God was burden and not blessing. But for those who experience mercy, who live in the context of mercy, secured ultimately in the cross, all of a sudden the call to follow is the most joyous gift of God that he could give. It's not a burdensome call, it's about life. And we feel it, we recognize it because we've encountered mercy. This is a week to celebrate mercy. New covenant mercy, restoration blessing mercy. And what God promises to do for Israel, ultimately, within the framework of the Pentateuch, and even in Deuteronomy 32, it includes the nations who will surrender their hearts and in the process of surrendering, celebrate mercy. To say this is a God-wrought thing and give praise to the one from whom it comes. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are good, so good, and you're good to us. That is astounding. We thank you for mercy. We pray all this only in the name of Jesus from whom the mercy can justly come. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and Treasuring a God who Rules, Saves, and Satisfies through Covenant for His glory in Christ.